are awesome. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, some of you, Nathan, you had those clothes on last week. <laughs> it's true. It's very true. But they haven't washed twice, actually, I think. Something like that. But nevertheless, uh, we have been packing and getting ready to depart. And so we are living out of a suitcase, two suitcases, which has been very nice. Um, staying with Mama Cotton in her very luxurious dwelling. So there's been lots of emotions this week, both good, both joyful, and also hard. And so I say that because Thank you, Carol. Carol, that's what I'm talking about right there. If you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, and if you don't, guess what? You can just Google it. Will you turn with me to Matthew 18? Oh, excuse, excuse me. Will you turn with me to Matthew chapter 8? We're going to look at verses 28 through 34. And as I was reflecting this week, with the nooks and crannies of preparation that I, I had as far as what I wanted to share with you, what I felt like the Lord wanted me to share with you, which is infinitely more important. I was thinking about how, and many of you have experienced this to a greater degree than I have, but moving is a chaotic situation, right? Everything about it is just chaos. I mean, there's joy and excitement, like you probably, you get to eat out a little bit more, you know, you get to, you know, you know, do you know, stay up a little later and stuff like that. But most of it, majority of it, just chaos. It's just this disorienting experience. And as I was thinking about it, and I was walking through our home, you know, which is which is empty. Now I was I was thinking about just how it doesn't matter your economic status, your ethnicity, your intelligence level. It doesn't matter. All human beings crave the ability to have control over their lives. Now, I think you can, that there's a negative sense in that, or it can be negative if we try to have too much control, but I also think it's just reality. We like having control. We prefer order to chaos, right? I don't think I'm the only one. I like having order. I like feeling like I have somewhat control over my life and the situations that occur. But you and I both know very well that oftentimes... There are certain things that happen in life that are outside of our control. There are certain factors and problems that we have to deal with that relinquish any control that we may want to have. This past May, our dear friends of ours uh, invited us to go to Disney with them. And it was a wonderful experience, all in all. It was the apex of my children's life thus far. But here's the thing about Disney. Like, obviously, yes, it's wonderful, it's magical. But you know what's the greatest thing about Disney, honestly? Well, there are several things, but... But maybe, maybe one of not the more obvious ones. Maybe it is obvious. But it's how adults act at Disney. To me, this was the most intriguing thing, right? Disney is the only place in the world where when you're in the park, this is one example, it's not just accepted, it's strongly encouraged that grown men dress up like Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> and that they go pay $300 to build a lightsaber, which is really cool. And then they run around the park frantically trying to find Darth Vader so they can duel with him. And all of these things are incredibly beautiful. Do you know why it's beautiful? Because the mundane problems that we deal with throughout the week in the real world don't exist in Disney. Right? Sicknesses don't exist in Disney. Parental frustrations don't exist in Disney to a certain degree. 
Spousal disagreements don't exist at Disney. Your problems at work seem to just drift away because they don't exist at Disney. But the problem is, not problem, the reality is, everyone who goes to Disney has to leave Disney. And when we leave, oftentimes we're then bombarded with all the frustrations and just difficulties of life and the problems that they present. You know, in a real way, we're reminded when we metaphorically leave the Disney park. We're reminded that we are so finite and we're so fragile and we need help. Otherwise, our life just spins into utter chaos. Life has a way of presenting problems that make us feel like we are completely disoriented and we don't have control over it. And you know exactly what I mean. And it's frustrating and it's difficult. The one theologian put it like this, we all have problems. We are the problem and we live with the problem. And this explains a lot that we deal with in the human condition on this side of heaven. And these problems disable us, they disorient us to where we, we don't feel like we have control over our, even our, over our lives. And in Matthew 8, Matthew's going to present us with Jesus visiting this quaint little city where there are some individuals whose lives are massively out of control whose lives have been turned upside down, where disorientation is the status quo for them. And even the people who believe in God have written them off as these people's lives are way into chaos. They're way too chaotic. And they reside into this one particular corner of the city so they can just deal with themselves. And so the question I really want us to unpack and think about this morning is when our life feels like it's completely out of control, is there really any hope? I don't mean really when everything is going great all the time or in, in that season. I'm talking about when your life feels completely out of control, disoriented. Is there any real hope? Look with me in Matthew chapter 8, starting verse 28. Matthew writes this. And when he, Jesus, came to the other side of, to the country of the, Gar- of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out, and they went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going to the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Would you guys pray with me? And if you're, if you're a praying person this morning, would you also pray for me that God would speak clearly to us, that he would encourage us, that he also would challenge us? Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for today. Father, I thank you for being a God who is faithful to your own mission that you have in the world. Lord, there are so many nooks and crannies, even here in the United States, with populations that are very dense that don't know who you are, that don't know your beauty or your majesty or your kindness. So, Father, would we be people that are aware of that, that are praying for those pockets? And, Father, also, even right here in our own town, Would we be mindful that there are people that are groping around in the dark looking for hope that only you can provide? 
Father, we love you. We trust you. Lord, would you light me on fire and let my friends and family watch me burn? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's start with something tremendously obvious, and that's really this, that sometimes there are some situations in life that seem void of all and any hope. It's just a part of the human experience. And here, Matthew is showing us in particular two particular individuals in which their lives are completely in chaos mode. He says that they're so fierce at the end of verse 28 that, that no one could interact with them or even go that way for fear of the individuals hurting themselves, for the individuals hurting themselves or what they may, what they may be walking into. And these very two men <laughs> approach Jesus and they come up to him. Now, what's helpful is that Luke and Mark also write about this account, but they tend to focus in on one of the demoniacs or one of the people that has, has this, this demon possession issue, that's, that their life has been so thrown into chaos. But there were two men there. And what's so interesting, well, I, I guess interesting, is Mark and Luke go into very specific detail of how, of how this demonic oppression affected these two individuals with bodily harm, spiritual harm, mental harm, in such a capacity that no one wants to interact with them at all. Now, let's take a time out for a second, because any time in 2023, in a gathering like this, when you mention something like demonic possession or spiritual, you know, evil spirits and stuff like that, it is wise of us to pause and think about that for a second, because I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, look, man, bud, it's 2023. We don't need to be talking about demonic possession anymore, right? There's a scientific formula that we can use instead of talking about demonic possession or evil spirits or, or things like that. We don't need to talk about those things. Like, we're, we've arrived. We're, at 2000, we're in 2023. And if you're not thinking that, listen to me very carefully. There are people in your life that do think that. So how do we interact with, the, the, how do we interact with and be honest with the scripture when it talks about things that are becoming more and more foreign in our, in our culture today? Well, here's two thoughts. Just consider these two thoughts. The first is this. Like, what's Matthew's intention? Matthew is not writing a, a fictitious fairy tale, right? There's no unicorns and, 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 and you know, trolls with long hair that sing like Justin Timberlake in this, in, this, in this book. Like, that's not his point. That's not his purpose. His purpose is to record a historically accurate account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we need to, when we come to the book, we have to read it on his, in, in the way in which he intended it to be read, number one. Number two, consider this. There's lots and lots of scholars that, that, that like to think that the gospel authors wrote this as a campaign so that, so that, so that the, this Jesus movement could gain political power and, and thus be the case. Well, here's the deal. There are sects within Judaism, and if you're familiar with Judaism, and some of you are way more educated in this than I am. But there are sects like the, like the Sadducees, for instance, that don't believe in the spiritual realm to that degree. They don't believe in demonic, in demons and things like that. So therefore, if Matthew is writing a polemic to try to get people on his side so they can gain political power, this is a huge waste of ink. Massive. You don't have the leader of this religious movement interacting with demons, things that sects of Judaism don't even believe in, if you're trying to merely just gain political power. So then the question is, well, why would he then write this? Well, the most logical explanation would be what? Because it happened. Because it's true. Okay, time in. Now, 
when we talk about demonic possession and those things, I think there is a disconnect. Even if you're, even if you're a Christian and you've been, you've been thinking about these things for a long time, there still is a disconnect. So here's, here's where I really want to hammer down, because I think this is what Matthew's point is. That the demoniacs, in a real way, represent people that are living lives that are completely out of control. That problems have come about them, either through their own doings or the doings of others. And they are living with zero hope and constantly being oppressed. So in a real way, you and I don't have to be demonic possessed to understand and know this reality very intimately. Right? Evil and frustration are real things that we experience. And they sneak into our lives all the time and they loosen the control that we have over our life. It doesn't have to be merely demonic possession. There are other threats that come into our lives that, that threaten to destroy any kind of control that we may have over it. Dan Doriani said this at one place, which I think is really helpful. He says, at the extreme, we can destroy ourselves through alcoholism and drug addiction. Sexual compulsions and chronic gambling can exercise a dreadful hold on us. He says, we need, to help. We need help to break the grip of these powers. Some sins can also control us. Racism, for instance, can. So can pride when every offense against our ego sends us towards the ditches of extreme anger or hurt. Even milder compulsions can wound us. Some of us feel like we have to accept every offer or attend every event until our schedules are so far out of control. Others stay up too late at night, night after night, and therefore they condemn themselves to chronic fatigue during the week. The point is this. You don't have to be demonic possessed to understand that there are threats that come, problems that come into our lives that disorient us. And that's a real thing. The demoniacs in a real way represent that. Their lives have been thrown into chaos, utter and complete chaos with not much hope of any kind of restoration. Even the religious people who should be trying to aid and serve them have cast them aside. And unfortunately, I think a lot of us have experienced this at some point in time. We've experienced this, this, this despair. It's not really a stranger to us. But here's the thing that Matthew does. If we're willing to see it, if we're willing to hear it, Matthew's going to show us there is no chaotic situation that comes in our life that Jesus can't bring restoration to. Nothing. Look, look at verse 29. Jesus approaches them and he says, and behold, they cry out, what have you to do with us? Why do you bother us? Is another way you could say that. Oh, son of God, have you come to torment us before the time? And then look, drop down to verse 31, because I think this is interesting. After the pig thing, that's interesting. We'll talk about that in a second. But then in th verse 31, he said, and the demons begged him. The demons are begging him. Please, if you cast us out, at least put us in the pigs. Now, it's always surprising to me, number one, how much more privy the demons are to who Jesus is than the actual people in the Gospels. Right? Have you ever noticed that before? Like the demons are, they have an amazing Christology, right? That's the big fancy word for knowledge of Christ. Like they have, a, they have such a glorious Christology. And it seems like the people, it's like, no, where, where, where are you? Like they know there's a time coming when Jesus himself will put an end to all evil agencies forever and ever and ever and ever. And they're begging him, don't let that time be now. We don't want that time to be now. And they ask him in really three different ways, or they mention three different things. The first two, very similar. He says, what do you have to do with us? Have you come to torment us before the time? See, they recognize that Jesus is the Son of God, that there is a day coming, and that he is there. He is 
uh, sorry, my mind went blank. He is their main antagonist. He thwarts their program and what they want to do. They want to steal, kill, and destroy, and Jesus is there to thwart all that, and they know it. So then they ask him the most bizarre thing in the world. Can you send us into the pigs? Now, there's two things I think is really interesting about this. As I was you know, reflecting on this, I just thought, well, that's such a weird thing to ask. Why would, he, why would they say that? Here's maybe two, two possibilities. The first is this. It's just maybe more of an observation. It's interesting that they have to ask permission to navigate inside Jesus' world. Isn't that interesting? The demonic powers that be, as scary and frightening as they be, have to ask permission before they can do anything. It's so interesting. But that really doesn't answer our question. Why did they ask this question? <laughs> See what I did there? Why did, they do, why did they do that? Well, some scholars have suggested this. Demons are all about one thing. Destruction. Chaos. Now watch this. They're also very clever. What happens? Because, because Mark is going to tell us specifically... Like, this is not like a tiny little pig farm. This is a, this is a pig farm around 2,000 different pigs, right? So we're not talking like Charlotte's Web here, where it's just Wilbur's in danger, right? This, this is 100% a driving force of the economic status of the city. So what happens if all of these pigs die? Ah, remember 2008? I mentioned that recession because it's one that I remember the most. But nevertheless, it's like, it's like, what happens to the economic status of this city, of the society, if, all of, if one of their prominent sources of incomes and employment goes down the toilet? What happens? And the demons know this. More, moreover, who gets blamed when the economy of the city crashes? Jesus does. So now Jesus is faced... With, which, with, from our perspective, from my perspective, I just, like with an impossible scenario. Because either he can heal these men who have been oppressed and beaten and knocked down by these demonic presence. By the way, it's only two of them. Or, if he does something about it, he provides the collapse, potentially, of this economic system. So what do you do? Do you choose the utilitarian position? Well, it's just two guys. Let's not worry about it. It's the, the, does the good outdo, the, does, the, does the greater good apply here? And it's so surprising. We shouldn't be surprised, but I think when we think about it in those terms, Jesus' answer is surprising. Because what does he do? Without hesitation, look at verse 32. And he said to them, go. So they came out, they go into the pigs, the pigs rush down the steep bank, and they drown in the waters. And the question for me is just, why in the world does Jesus grant their request? Why? Why in the world? And I think here's the answer. Number one, Matthew's already alluded to it. It's not the time for them to be fully destroyed. There's a time coming, time's not yet. But here's maybe an even more truer answer. Jesus is showing his disciples, the city at large, and also us, at the end of the day, when given the choice between pigs and people, Jesus chooses people every single time. Given the choice between economic collapse or changing our day-to-day -day operations and saving two souls, Jesus chooses the two souls every time. People 
are more important than pigs. Which is an amazing thing. I remember listening to this. This is, P.S., this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I just, ever since I was super young, I remember riding around in our 97 Forest Green Aerostar and listening to uh, Adventures in Odyssey. And this one in particular. If you don't know what Adventures in Odyssey is, I just, I cannot help you. But we listened to this story, and I loved it so much because I was into X-Men and superheroes. And this is like Jesus being the most superhero possible, right? I mean, he's just driving demons out and just being crazy strong. But here's the thing. You know, as I read it now, and I look back at it, back at it like those things are true. You know, Jesus is powerful. He did come to set up his rule and his reign and to bring order you know, to chaos and he's powerful and mighty and majestic. Those things are true. They're very true. You know what else is true? Jesus is incredibly kind. Jesus truly is the God who leaves the 99 for the one. He's not utilitarian. He's not. He is willing to let this entire community be on the brink of economic instability. Why? Because those two people matter to him. Because he cares deeply. Because with Jesus, it's always people over pigs. His kindness is incredibly, incredibly wonderful and beautiful and true. So here's what I want. I want you to hear me when I say this. The same Jesus that responds this way to these two individuals is the same Jesus that we have the opportunity to know and to love and to adore today. If your life currently, and I don't know where we're at, I don't know where everyone is at, and I don't want to assume anything. I just want to tell you something that's true. Like, my friends, here's the truth. No matter how chaotic your, mind, your life may seem, Today, tomorrow, or a year from now. Like, if Jesus shows this kind of radical kindness to these two individual demonic-possessed people, he can do the same for you. He will do the same for you. He is a God who brings order to chaos because he's powerful, but he's also kind and gentle and lovely. You see, there's such a temptation, I think, in evangelicalism, just period, you know, to, to look around at the culture and to think, man, we have to stand our ground. We have to fight. We have to dig our, our feet in. We have to push back on this community. We have to push back on this community. And it's just this, this brawl and this fight. But listen, I want to say something maybe a bit provocative. I think there's merit to that in pockets and in seasons. But at the same time, I don't see Jesus operating like that. It's not us versus them. It's, it, it is not a battle. It's not a battle where we're fighting, we're digging, and we're, we, we have to hold, the, hold the, the standard. Standards are good. I'm not saying compromise doctrine or anything like that. I'm just saying like this. Consider this. It's the kindness of the Lord that brings people to repentance. Not your theological eloquence. Not your ability to, to, to side with one particular political party or, or to, to talk bad about the other one. It's the kindness of the gospel that brings people to repentance. And I think we need to remember that. Me first and foremost. Because there's no situation that we can encounter that Jesus entering the scene can't bring order to. Because he's powerful, but he's also kind. 
So let's get back to our original question. When our lives are out of control, is there really any hope? And the answer is a big fat yes. And our hope is this, that there's no life that's so out of control that Jesus can't bring order to, that he can't restore, that he can't rescue. Look at verse 33. Verses 33 and 34 are two, I think, of the most, com- most perplexing verses to me, maybe in the New Testament, after this whole thing goes down. The herdsmen fled, and going to the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed man. Why do you think Matthew highlights that so strongly? Because they don't want to be blamed. For whatever economic crash that's about about to happen, they want everyone to know, this is Jesus' fault, it's not our fault. And then look, which makes sense in verse 34. Behold, all the city comes out to meet Jesus. And how do they respond? For the second time, they beg Jesus is begged in this story. And notice what they beg him to do. You have to go. You've got to get out of here. You have got to get out of here. In a real sense, they're echoing what the demons had said to Jesus earlier. What do you have to do with us? Why are you here? And the humans are responding in the same way. Jesus, why are you here? You have to go. Well, not all of them are responding like that. There are two particular individuals individuals that are not responding like that at all. What's so interesting, we don't get the full picture here in Matthew, but Mark gives us a full picture, in particular, one of the demoniacs, one of the men who had been oppressed, where they're at now. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, in his right mind. He's clothed with new clothes, completely and utterly restored, who moments earlier, or or, or however long the time period before, was completely out of his mind. And Jesus has brought order to this particular individual's life. And what's crazy is the townspeople, when they come to Jesus, they have to confront this person. They have to see it. They have to see it, and then they have to actively deny that Jesus is both powerful and kind. They have to actively deny him in doing so. Which they should have done this. They should have said, Jesus, how in the world were you able to do what you did? How can Jesus heal these people? These two people that are clearly in this state of chaos and their lives, life is just flailing before their, their, before their eyes. How is he able to do it? When Jesus sends the pigs into the demon, oh, no, excuse me, when he sends the demons into the pigs, right, it's not the death of the pigs that defeats the evil, or the evil oppression over the lives of the individuals or the, or the threat that they pose to the city. You see, it's not the death of imperfect animals that restores chaos in a life to restoration, to order. No, instead it's the death of a perfect man. And not long from here, Jesus is going to invite those demons to come attack someone else, himself. Which is another reason why he can't destroy him yet. Because he still needs them to do their thing on him. On the cross, Jesus takes on everything that the satanic army could ever and will ever throw at him. And he bears it all. The perfect son of God bears all those. And the question is, why? Why would he do that? And I'll tell you why. For you. And for me. He bears our sin. He bears our punishments on the cross. And beyond that, He's victorious. 
He rises from the grave. And when he does, those who trust in him, he breaks that satanic power over us. Where, where no, no, no longer does that grip set in as deep. He frees us from those things. If we trust him, the same power that he exercises on the demons that have such a hold on these two individuals, he makes the same power available to us as well, which is amazing. But then there's one loose end I think we have to tie up. We gotta talk about this really ironic response to the people telling him to get away. Like I said, I mean, for the second time, Jesus is being begged and begged that he would, he would leave and not return. They don't praise him like they should. They don't bring other sick people to him like they should. They don't worship him like they should. In fact, they just tell him to leave. And if that were you or I, we may be a bit perturbed. We may be a bit confused and angry, but Jesus is not like that. In fact, Jesus' behavior is, well, it's like Jesus, I guess we could say. How does Jesus respond to this? Mark tells us this in verse 18. Watch this. In verse 18 in Mark, Mark chapter 5, he says, As he was getting onto the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might follow him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Jesus, again, in his kindness to these people who do not want him there, who tell him to leave, who echo the same sentiment that the demons themselves echo to Jesus, responds in the kindest of ways by giving them a missionary. He leaves someone behind. Let me just imagine for a second. You grow up for however long this, these two individuals are being tortured. You're taught to stay away from them. You're taught that they're mean, they're evil, they're going to hurt you. And now... As you're walking about town, you're seeing a complete 180 in this person, in character, in restoration. Every day, while the crowds, while the city may be rejecting him right now, how long can they deny what Jesus has done? They've said no to Jesus. We, we want you gone. And Jesus says, that's okay, because I'm going to leave evidence that you have to interact with on a daily basis for as long as you live, for the rest of your life. Which is a great reminder, I think, for us who have experienced God's restoration. We've experienced life being in utter chaos and being made whole again. Remember, Jesus doesn't do that in a vacuum. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't just save us, to use that language, or he doesn't just give, forgive our sins just to forgive sins. He does it so that we are then invited to be participants in him restoring the life of other people. That's why he does it. You and I, who have trusted in Christ, it's, that's so, it's so wonderful. Your eternity is, is set. Your sins are forgiven. But that's not it. And that's not even the fun part. The fun part is you get to rub elbows with other people in whom God is also doing the same work. Hide it under a bush? Oh, no. You've got to let it shine. So where do we go from here? You guys know that reference, right? Okay. Where do we go from here? Listen, I don't know where you're at today, but I do know this. The story of these demoniacs teaches us that, that even a life that seems so far out of control, 
<laughs> Jesus can bring order to in the most beautiful of ways. Like in this episode in particular, it happens really fast. It doesn't always happen at this particular pace in our world. Sometimes it takes longer. But here's the deal. The same power in which Jesus exhibits here is the same power that we have access to as well. Because he is alive and well. So what about for you personally? You know, for me, well, you know, I'm sure there are those of us here today that are experiencing, like, just chaos in life. And I want you to know this. And I want you to remember this. And I want you to trust this, that Jesus cares so incredibly deeply for you. And we need no more proof than to look at the cross. Jesus was willing literally to move heaven and earth to come to make you whole again, to forgive your sins, to break the power of sin over your life. Trust him. Trust him and participate with him as he does it in the lives of the people that you work, live, and play with. My time is up, but I would like to just do kind of like a sub-conclusion here. Look, I'm closing my thing. Right? So, um, this, this story is very, I mean, like I said, I've always loved it, always. But, you know, like, some stories in the Bible are hitting me a little bit different, you know, these days. Like the call to Abraham, you know, to leave Ur and go, you know, on this great adventure. Um, you know, Moses leaving Egypt, even Jeremiah not wanting to be in the ministry anymore. Like, th these are landing a little different on me, you know, as, as we transition, you know, from Katy, Texas to, to Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, and in a good way, but also, you know, just challenging way as well. And so, I think, what do I want to say? What I want to say is this, that I'm just very thankful for you guys. I'm very grateful. Um, love you, Nathan. Uh, love you too, brother. I like. I very much identify with the demoniac. Um, you know, the the past year or, or so in my own personal life has just been in disarray. Just lots of change. Lots of trying to figure out how to, where, where are you leading our family. Where, how is all this working? And, you know, the last place in the world I, I wanted to go was Connecticut, right? I mean, it's, uh, nothing, nothing against Connecticut. I mean, it's beautiful and I love it so much. It's just, you know, my home is here. I wanted to, you know, you know I, I, I want to be here. And I just so much identify with the demoniac begging Jesus. Jesus, let me serve you in this way. You know, let, let me go here with you. And I also think I understand better now Jesus saying no to him. No. I know you want to do this, but I need you to do this. And in a very profound way, I was speaking with a church planner. Um, this is it, I promise. I'm not rambling. Uh, I was speaking with a church planning coordinator for the Acts 29 network in New England, which only has a handful of churches because there are only a handful of churches in New England, which is just so exciting. Uh, and I remember him, as the phone call was closing, he said this. He said, Nathan, I, 
And I, I just met him, right? Like, this is the first time we ever met. He says, I just want you to know how thankful I am for you. And I said, uh, okay, well, you know, hold off on that, get to know me a little bit more first. He said, no, no, I, I want you to know that as a network, we pray regularly that, that we would get missionaries, that we would get pastors, because it was just so desperately need churches that believe the basic things, like the resurrection is real. Like, we need that. And I want you to know that you and your family are an answer to our prayers. And I say that to say this. Man, leaving is so hard, right? I mean, clearly. Leaving is very hard, but at the same time, it just feels so purposeful and so necessary. And I feel like in a very large way, because we have some contingencies of Haven represented today, which I think is really fun. But these two congregations have been instrumental in the formation of preparing my family and myself. I hope this is not the wrong way to say it, but to be the answer to however many years of praying that this, this community has been doing for people to come and tell people about the beauty and wonders of Jesus Christ. And so from the bottom of my heart, I'm just... I'm just so grateful and so thankful. And thank you for the extra time. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We don't always know what you're doing or why you're doing the things uh, that you're doing. And we may never know. And you know what? That's okay. That's all right. Because you cannot do less than your infinitely perfect best. And so, Father, I'm thankful for these two congregations that are represented today. I thank you for the investment that they've made in me and my family. And, Father, I pray that. Uh, I, I pray boldly that you would give us success uh, in New England. I'm not talking about big churches. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just that the gospel temperature would be raised. And that if just one person were to come to, were to, come to know you, or two people, man, that's wonderful. It's worth it. Father, thank you for this story. Lord, for those of us whose lives are in chaos. Would you remind us and show us just the beauty of Christ? We love you. May we trust in you when times are good and when times are difficult. In Jesus' name we pray.